Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. Um, I was born in Texas City, Texas, but as a young boy, our family moved to the upper Midwest near Chicago, where I received most of my education before traveling across the pond to do my PhD work in, in the UK. And so I have lost most of my Texas accent, but I'm really working to get it back. My wife and I now live here in the greater Austin, and we are glad to be here. Um, my grandparents worried that I would marry a Yankee when I moved away, a word they used for almost anyone who was not from Texas. But <laughs> I got an amen down there. <laughs> but um, when they met my wife, uh, Stacy, who was then my girlfriend, they fell in love with her, and eventually she fell in love with Texas. And I will say that it did have something to do with the Chicago winters. Um, if you haven't spent time in Chicago in the winter, just imagine that winter storm we had back in February. Only imagine that every day for about five months. And uh, the difference is we were a little more prepared, of course. Um, I remember seeing my, my neighbor out shoveling, shoveling her driveway with a dustpan. And the first thought that came to my mind is, well, not everything is bigger in Texas. <laughs> um, but we're, we're glad to be here. Uh, Matt asked me to say a little bit about my work. I work for an organization called uh, Global Action, and the focus of our work is providing education for ministers who live in Africa, Asia, and Latin America who have no access to any theological education, who have never been taught how to study God's Word, how to preach God's Word, and we have some 2,000 students in our program every year. I'm also affiliated with a research center at the University of Cambridge in England, where we focus on the growth of Christianity in the non-Western world and in Latin America. To put that succinctly, in the year 1900, more than 80% of the world's Christians lived in the North Atlantic West, that's the United States, Canada, and Western Europe today, some 70% of the world's Christians live in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Today, the church in Africa is growing at a rate of some 25,000 new converts every single day, every single day. And we, our, our center is working on understanding the growth of Christianity in the non-Western world. For those of you who are interested in missions, you can see my most recent book, which is World Christianity and the Unfinished Task, a very short introduction. You can Google it. You can get it on Amazon. I didn't bring any copies with me today. But that will give you uh, some insight into the growth of the church around the world and why it's important for us to engage in mission within the context of understanding the growth of Christianity in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Missions used to be from the West to the rest. Almost all of the world's missionaries in the year 1900 went from North America and Western Europe to the rest of the world. Today, missions is from everywhere to everyone. And there is no such thing as a closed country. That's a very American-centric way of looking at the world. Yes, there are countries that are closed to me, 
but there are no countries that are close to the gospel because we have Christians right now all over the world, including in Afghanistan. And we should pray today for the 7,500 Christians who are trying to faithfully live out their faith in Afghanistan in a very different part of the world. And so our organization's working now with Christians all over the world, teaching them to teach the Word of God, which is what we're going to do this morning. Our text is Genesis chapter 26. It's the story of Isaac, and he experienced one disappointment after another, and some have called him the forgotten patriarch because we know about Abraham, we know about Jacob, but we don't know a lot about Isaac. He experienced one disappointment after another, famine, failure, frustration, and foe, but he also experienced the blessing of God. Not just blessing, but abundant blessing. And one of the things that stands up out about his life is that he never gave up. He just kept digging wells, even in the desert, even in the middle of a famine, even in new places. And yes, the setbacks were frustrating. In fact, we will see in the story, he expresses his frustration. But his life was marked by persevering faith. He believed that God was good, and in that belief, he simply did not give up. As scholars have argued, the New Testament writers show us how to read the Old Testament stories. Most of the Bible comes to us in story form. And so we're looking at one of those stories this morning. A classic text in this regard is Hebrews 11 and 12, in which the argument is made that the people of God face many dangers, toils, and snares. And yet they persevered in their faith. And I'm paraphrasing from Hebrews 12. We're surrounded by all of these witnesses, all of these people who persevered in their faith, who can stand and testify that God is faithful, that he can be trusted to bless his people. So do not give up. Do not lose heart. I just paraphrased all of Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12. Look at all of these people who have persevered from Abraham up to the present and look to your Savior, Jesus Christ, who persevered, who died on the cross for you, who was buried, and who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So persevere in your faith. This is how we're to read the Old Testament narratives. They encourage us to persevere in our faith. Let's look at the story together and see what kind of encouragement we can find. Now, there was a famine in the, in the land beside the, fam, the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. Would you read that aloud with me? And I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give them all these lands, and through your offsprings all nations on earth will be, what's the next word there? Blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commandments, my decrees, and my instructions. So I stayed 
So Isaac stayed in Gerar. In many ways, this world that Isaac lived in was much like looking at a map of the state of Texas. There is significant geological diversity. There are desert desert areas right in the middle, kind of like our Rio Grande Valley. There are coastal plains over near the city of Gerar, kind of like the land between Beaumont and Houston. There is the hill country between the coastal plains and the desert. In fact, in the Bible, it is called the hill country, which, was, which is why my dad, who has always lived in Texas, referred to Texas as the promised land. <laughs> there were fertile areas year-round, especially in Egypt, where the Nile River was always flourishing, the land around it. A famine was a serious threat to someone who was in Isaac's business. Isaac had inherited a great deal of wealth from his father, and his wealth was tied up in his flocks and herds. In a manner of speaking, Isaac was in the cattle business, and business was good. You cannot picture a man with a wooden staff surrounded by a handful of goats trying to scratch out a living in the desert. Isaac had inherited a large and successful family business with hundreds of servants and hired hands to help him manage his affairs. A modern-day comparison might be King Ranch that stretches across six entire Texas counties. This was a big operation, which explains why Isaac, including his father Abraham, always had access to kings, the wealthy have you noticed, usually have access to the powerful. You will notice the text says that Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. People of wealth found themselves in the presence of people of power, just as they do today. And when you were in Isaac's business in the ancient world, a famine was a threat to everything you owned. And part of being in this line of work meant knowing what to do during a famine. You might need to move your entire operation, which was no simple feat. You needed access to land and a lot of it. You also needed access to plenty of water. You would need connections, someone in a position of power to, who could open doors for you. You don't just show up with your whole operation and say, hey, this is a great place to put Tesla. I think I'll put Amazon right here. No, you have to have conversations, and you have to have connections. And Isaac did. He had connections with Abimelech. You wanted a person of influence who would say, I'm going to make this happen, and we can do business together. This will be mutually beneficial for us. So Isaac moves from Beersheba to Gerar. Beersheba in the desert, Gerar, which is closer to the Mediterranean coast. He makes arrangements with King Abimelech. And Isaac was contemplating moving, moving further west. He would have taken the Via Maris, which means the way of the sea, an ancient trade route that would take you along the coast to Egypt. And it was a really good idea. That was a really good place to go in the middle of a famine if you were in Isaac's business. Egypt was the breadbasket of the world. 
There would be plenty of land and water and food, and he likely had connections there through his father, who you may recall had done the same thing. Remember, there was a famine also in the days of his father, Abraham. It would have been a wise move. His business would definitely flourish in Egypt, but God appears to him and says, look at the text with me again. Stay in this land for a while. Say it with me. I will be with you and will bless you. Would you say that with me? I will be with you and will bless you. Now, I don't think the lesson here is that we should just throw common sense out the window. The Scriptures do encourage us to use wisdom and to think carefully about our best options. I know my wife and I, when we're going through a very difficult time, we get together and we think about what is it God wants us to do? Does he want us to move? Where does he want us to move? Does he have a change for us? We all do that. We all should. Talk to our mentors. Talk to our spiritual guides. The entire book of the, uh, entire book of the Bible is filled with Proverbs calling us to use our heads to think Wisdom is a good thing. Thinking through our options in difficult situations is pleasing to God. But here is an important lesson. The Lord is with his people, and he is able to bless them anywhere. This is one of the things that distinguished God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the gods and goddesses of the ancient Near East. Many pagan deities were confined possessing power only only in a particular place or sphere. For example, the Egyptian goddess Anuket was the goddess of the Nile. If you wanted to be blessed by him, you went to the Nile. There was the Philistine god Dagon, who was the god of crops and fields along the coast of Philistia. There was Baal, the, the god of Mount Hermon, There were also gods for the sun, the moon, and the sky, but not so with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is how you must understand the creation narrative. God is revealing himself to Israel and saying, I created the sun. I created the moon. I created the stars. Indeed, I call them by name. I made every river, every mountain, every field. I am God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Lord of all creation, who will be with you, and I am able to bless you anywhere and everywhere. And this is a great encouragement to the people of God. His blessing is not restricted to one location or one set of circumstances. He can bless you right where you are. If you're watching this online, he can bless you in your hospital bed right now. There are some situations that are more ideal for human flourishing. No question about it. But we all find ourselves in situations that are not ideal. It could be a job. It could be a relationship. It could be where you actually live. Could be something you're going through right now that is frustrating. When I mentioned a hospital bed, I thought of someone that I love right now who is in the hospital. He can bless you. That deep, dark hole of depression, 
somehow God is there with you. In cancer, maybe it's a lawsuit, bankruptcy, business failure. Name it, think about it, think about what you're going through right now. He is with you. He can bless you right where you are. He often blesses us in the most unexpected places. Can you say amen? amen. Now, for those of you who are really not sure about this whole idea of blessing, I talk about it because I find it in Scripture. We find it in the very beginning when God pronounced a blessing upon Adam and Eve. Yes, this doctrine is abused by people, but we don't get rid of a doctrine just because it's abused. We use that doctrine properly. Remember, Paul said some of you are abusing the doctrine of grace in Romans chapter 6, but we still preach grace. We want to understand grace and preach it in the proper way. We still preach that God blesses his people. We find it woven into the very worship of the community. Remember how the Lord told the priest to speak to his people during worship. This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So you will put my name on the Israelites, and I will, say it with me, bless them. And blessing is promised to us in the future. As we read in Revelation, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Amen? We are going to be, it's going to be blessed. It's going to be a blessed time. These are the true words of God. And just a gentle corrective for those who say things like, God is not concerned about your happiness. He's only concerned about your holiness. This is not good theology. Older theologians would say, God is so concerned about your happiness that he is working on your holiness. Remember Paul's words to Timothy, godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. We don't tell our kids, look, the reason I want you to listen to me is because I want you to be holy. I don't care if you're happy. Try that one next time you're having an argument with one of your teenagers. Or as one of my favorite writers, C.S. Lewis, put it, it is a Christian duty, as you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can because this glorifies God. He is glorified in the happiness of his people. Indeed, in the words of Jonathan Edwards, the reason we will need forever is because it will take forever for God to bestow all of his goodness upon his people for their eternal delight. God wants to bless you, and he's able to bless you right where you are. He's not just the God of the Nile. He's not just the God of whatever location or set of circumstances you may think to be most desirable. So the Lord blesses Isaac. And when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. 
because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she's really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? And Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who harms this man or his wife will surely be put to death. Now, it's hard for us modern readers to understand what is happening here. I'll introduce you to an ancient concept called diplomatic marriage. For those of you not familiar with this, this was marriage between influential families to secure political, social, or economic benefits. So you must think here of Isaac as a desert sheik rather than a simple shepherd, and he is friends with the king, and he has a beautiful wife, and this could be used to his advantage. Rather than allowing himself to be in a situation where people would be jealous of his success and jealous of his beautiful wife, people who may even wish to do him harm, he would use a clever ruse he had learned from his father. He would ask Rebecca to pretend to be his, wife, his sister. Now he will have even more friends in high places. And many of them would come to his dinner parties and do business with him with the hope that they might become brother-in-law to a wealthy prince who is friends with the king. It was a way of keeping your friends close and your enemies closer. And it was clever. It was manipulative. He learned it from his father, and it worked until the king glanced out of his window and caught Isaac and Rebekah flirting in a way that made it clear that they were definitely not brother and sister. And so the Philistine king confronts Isaac. The commentaries here find it interesting that this pagan king, this Philistine king, is made to look like a godly prophet rebuking the patriarch for his sin. Isn't it the case that oftentimes the people of God fail in ways that even those who are not followers of God say, what you're doing is wrong. It's sinful. And this is an encouragement to the rest of us. Why is this included in the story? Look at the next two verses. Isaac planted crops in the land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold, because the Lord, say it with me, blessed him. Wow. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. Now, right after we read that story of Isaac's deception, then we read about the blessing of God. Is that the way you would have written the story? Is that the way I would have written the story? No, but the lesson is clear. The Lord is gracious to his people. He blesses them even though they are undeserving. If you're wondering why in the world would he put that story in there and in the very next section talk about how God blessed him, it's because perhaps we don't realize how gracious and good our God is. 
The writer of Scripture connects the life of Abraham to the life of Isaac, showing that they were both deeply flawed, and yet they were both abundantly blessed by God. And every other story in Scripture follows the same plot. We are fallen, broken people. And yet, our God has been gracious to us, and there is no greater example of this than in the death of Jesus Christ, where God pours out his love upon us. And Romans 8 says, and there is nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing in this world, not even your sin, not even your failure. So if you're here today and you've never heard that good news, hear it today. Christ died for you, whatever your failure. We're all broken people, and he wants to bless you with forever through Jesus Christ. This is the story throughout the Bible. And this is a great great encouragement to the person who says, God will never bless me. I'm such a mess. God blesses messes. This is how amazing he is. This is indeed what the cross is all about. Here's an encouragement to the person who says, someday I'm gonna get it all together and then God will bless me. You're gonna be waiting a long time. I like what Brennan Manning says in his well-known book that many of you are familiar with, Ragamuffin Gospel. He struggled with alcoholism his entire life. And he wrote, when I get honest, I admit I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said, I'm a rational animal. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. What he's not saying is that we should just give in to our incredible capacity for doing things that will harm our bodies and souls. Brennan Manning certainly did not do that. He's just putting the words of the Apostle Paul into contemporary language. We continue to struggle. We do the things that we don't want to do, and we don't do the things that we want to do, and yet nothing can separate us from the love of God. He still chooses to graciously bless us. The ancient liturgy of the church, taken from the gospel, gospels, reads, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the words, and I shall be healed. Those of you from a liturgical background will recognize that. We say that right in the middle of the Eucharist. We might say, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word, and I shall be blessed. Well, to our final point this morning, he had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham. His father had been in this area before. The Philistines stopped up filling them with earth, and Abimelech said, move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. So God blesses him, and now 
the Philistines sabotage the blessing. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar, where he settled, and Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. He doesn't give up. He just keeps digging wells. Verse 19, Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a fresh, a well of fresh water there. We call that live water in Texas. Just keeps producing. But the herders of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac and said, this water is ours. So he named the well Esek because they disputed with him. A word that means to fight. It's an ancient way of expressing your frustration. There's absolutely nothing sinful about finding a way to express our frustration. He just names it. He calls it what it is, Esek. A fight broke out. Eugene Peterson said, we need to learn to cuss without cussing. That's what the Psalms help us do. Just names it, calls it what it is. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one, so he named it Sitna. Be sure you pronounce your words right, okay? Your, 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 your S correctly. Opposition. He just names it. Haven't we all said it? It just seems like one thing right after another. God told me to stay here. I did. He blessed me. And now I've got all... <laughs> Everyone wants what I have, and I keep moving from one place to another, and I keep digging wells, and guess what? God keeps blessing him. And then, verse 22, they moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. And he named it Rehoboth, saying, the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. And our final lesson is this, the Lord is faithful. He will be with his people even in difficulty and disappointment. He is powerful. He's able to bless us wherever we are. He is gracious. He blesses us though we are undeserving. He is faithful, and he will bless us even in our disappointment and difficulty. But our call as followers of Yahweh is to be faithful not to give up. As Eugene Peterson wrote, your task is to dig wells in your desert. Don't give up. At the end of the story, God even blesses Isaac with another live well and gives him peace with his enemies. He's able, he is gracious, he is faithful. The story is telling us more about God than about Isaac, but also giving us encouragement to be like Isaac because of who God is. Whatever you're going through, God wants to bless you. He wants to bless your church community. Whatever your story is, whatever your history is, keep digging new wells. God wants to bless you. Keep digging wells and trust that you will see the goodness of the Lord. Let us pray together. Our Father, we come to you and we have all faced times in our lives that really feel like we're in a famine in the middle of a desert. 
We have faced times when we have been frustrated over opposition, over foes. And maybe there are those here going through those kinds of difficulties now. And so we just want to pause and pray this ancient prayer this morning. I want to pray it over all of us. Lord, we pray that you will bless us and keep us. Lord, we pray that you will make your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. Lord, we pray that you will turn your face toward us and give us peace, give us strength like Isaac. Help us with grit and grace to dig wells in the desert and surprise us, surprise us with your sovereign goodness. Amen.